0: and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, there's a huge one, a huge one, the legend Margaret Cho is on the show today, stand-up comedy legend, screen legend, and and punk rocker. We'll get to more of that in one second, but first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedatapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you, buddy, for all the hard work you do on this show. I love you so much. And uh, this one took like a year and a half to come together. So thanks for putting in the work, buddy. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, I'm on various forms of social media at left for Damien. Uh, if you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it or subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice or picking up a t-shirt for this podcast at turnedatapunk.com. Thank you. Thank you to people that have done that. It is very much appreciated and helps keep the lights on around here. Uh, I play in a band. We're called fucked up. We will be going on tour Starting this weekend, actually, in Texas. We got some dates in Colorado, or a date in Colorado, in New Mexico, in Arizona. Check fuckedup.cc for more information about the band and these upcoming tour dates. And on to today's show. As I said off the top on the show today, we have a legend in the house, Margaret Cho. If there's a stand-up comedy hall of fame, she would be in there. She's also known for countless TV roles, her own TV series, a groundbreaking actor and comedian and and a legend. There's no other way to put it. Tristan, as I said, has been working on this happening for a very long time and we are so grateful that it has finally happened because years ago, years ago, I had heard that Margaret Cho was into punk and actually talking to Chris O'Toole, shout out to Chris O'Toole, co-host of Footnotes and turned out a punk God around here. Anyway, I was talking to Chris O'Toole and he brought up a whole bunch of stuff, uh, involving Margaret Cho and punk rock things and punk rock adjacent things. So yeah, we we, are all very excited about this one around turn out a punk. I'm not going to ramble on. I don't think there's anything else for me to bore you with right now. Margaret Cho will be going on tour throughout the fall. You can find out more information about her tour dates at margaretcho.com. And go and see her live because this is someone who still, still hilarious, unbelievably funny, unbelievably incredible. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Margaret Cho on Turned Out a Punk. Margaret, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Of course, thank you.
0: Well, as I told you off air, this is a big one for me because I'm a I'm a huge fan of yours. And also we have mutual friends in the greatest rhythm section of all time, Jason U Darcy and John Worcester.
1: Oh, they're they're my they're my bands. They're I'm in a band with them. Um I'm not sure what the band is called. Maybe it's um chose before bros. It, it might be. <laughs> they're <laughs> Uh, they're awesome. I've, I've actually um, sung with uh, them with um, Bob molds uh, m- you know doing Bob molds songbook and and stuff with Bob mold and um, work with them many times and I, I really, really love them.
0: Well, that's actually another thing we have in common. We've both shared stage with Bob mold. Yes. And it's a, a privilege for me to get to have done that, as it is a privilege to talk to you. And I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Margaret, how'd you get in a punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Uh,
1: well, the first time that I ever came across the genre was probably um, in the early 80s, going to um, the Rock Against Reagan shows, which uh, also were Rock Against Racism shows which would feature uh bands like the Dead Kennedys and um uh Black Flag and uh, uh probably Husker Du was in there some, somewhere I'm sure um MDC uh all these like flipper all these really old school uh punk rock bands in San Francisco who um were playing at the Mab uh, which I was too young to get into, but um, <laughs> I really loved punk as another avenue to uh, understand rock and roll and style and rebellion. And so punk rock to me was super exciting and probably the first music movement that I really felt like I could belong to.
0: What, like, draw, drew you to those shows? Because those are kind of, you know, legendary punk shows in San Francisco. But, like, what was it about those events? Were you hearing about the stuff in the media prior to it? Or what was it, like, specifically that brought you out to those?
1: I think what heard, uh, I heard about were just, like, things. They, they were the things that people I knew were going to. They were just the things that I was hearing about. There were also uh, the shows that uh, didn't have to be uh 18 or 21 to get in they were happening during the day they were happening outside they were free that's actually probably the biggest motivating factor it's just like rock and roll shows that were free that were happening in the park um or down by a sort of like a i guess it would be sort of like fishing docks in san francisco um down uh south of market down there um but mostly the motivating factor were you weren't paying to get in and then also like when i was a little bit older i was going to barrington hall which was a uh in berkeley and it was um it was a dorm kind of and it it was sort of a cross between like a dorm and maybe um a kind of a co-op living situation it wasn't a frat house But it occupied a large building that maybe could have been perceived as a fry house, but really wasn't. It was a sort of anarchist, punk rock, group living situation um, with lots of very, very smart kids who um, were doing a lot of drugs, doing a lot of punk shows. And um, it was really, really rock and roll.
0: Well, it's kind of fascinating because, like, I think throughout the 80s, punk, you know, really centralizes in the Bay Area like san francisco it becomes kind of like punk capital and going into the 90s and the punk rock boom that happens there it really kind of is centered out of that scene like what kind of bands were playing at barrington hall was it still sort of like mdc and crucifix kind of era or is it like a newer wave of bands
1: it was like all sorts of uh very um I, I think, I you know, names of bands that I don't remember <laughs> at all, like bands that maybe just were sort of like there for the night. There was also like a little bit of a, a mix of like early electronica. So you had like a bit of rave in there. You had um, a little bit of variety acts, a little bit of uh, a sort of a Jim Rose circus vibe where you had kind of people who were, basically doing self-harm (laughs) it's just like really like very punk rock so um i remember uh at some point like maybe going making plans to go see a Gigi allen show but for some reason not being able to uh go at the last minute or something but um i uh, was peripherally aware of chicken john and um, some of the people uh, around, I guess, like murder junkies, people around. But I never, um, I, I didn't get to see Gigi Allen. I mean, that was a little bit later, in the late '80s, early '90s. So, um, yeah.
0: You're probably probably better for making that choice.
1: <laughs> I know. I I didn't. It wasn't until later seeing the documentary, hated, um, and then late, mu- much more, much later, actually recently. I was in a wing of uh, the Museum of Death and somebody tried to steal uh, one of the um, artworks of G.G. Allen. I think it was something that he had done. And so it was like an original G.G. Allen, like, line drawing. And she had taken it off of the wall and shoved it down in her pants and tried to run out. And I ran out after her and I told the proprietor, <laughs> she's stealing. And he ran out after her and he got it and um and for that i am uh, awarded lifetime uh free membership or free entry into the museum of death until i become an exhibit i guess <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's amazing I kind of collect Gigi Allen stories on this podcast and that is a Gigi Allen story in absentia that is amazing
1: <laughs> it's amazing I mean it was really bold that she did and then that that sort of like I think inspired that museum to really up their uh security so now they have quite a an array of like cameras and everything to make sure that something like that doesn't happen again but um you know I guess they just wouldn't think that something like that would be really valuable but actually very 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 valuable so i i'm glad that they, that was not lost
0: well it's funny because like Gigi and john wayne gacy used to t- trade artwork with each other mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh that was a uh i guess <laughs> a very weird illicit uh artistic uh marriage yeah. in in a way
1: there was something also it was very punk to have a Gigi a- allen painting and i i know that um you know now you look at that stuff and you think well it's kind of like a horrible thing and more likely you weren't getting an original because i think john wayne Gacy was pretty much running uh like a little bit of a factory and some of the the you know people in a prison with him were actually painting these paintings and he would just sign them so you know
0: there was a book that came out at one point of uh i guess allegedly all the people that own Gigi Allen paintings or mm-hmm. sorry, John Wayne Gacy paintings and Oprah Winfrey apparently owned a, uh, interesting. A painting. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes that's, sense. Chicago.
1: I mean, you know, I, I guess so. I, I think that, um, much more valuable to have a, a Gigi Allen painting. I mean, much more yes. valuable to have any kind of Gigi Allen, anything. Um, he's one of those artists that really, that's truly punk you know what you really punk you don't even make it to the show (laughs) like you know when you're really punk it gets shut like shut down most of his shows i think would maybe last about seven or eight minutes if that
0: yeah yeah they've yeah still this day the most extreme artist of all time in in music
1: i i really think so i mean i i I really regret not getting to see him, but I'm sure that, um, I mean, I've heard enough about it. I know, uh, enough about that kind of stuff and now being such a germaphobe as the sort of current state of the world is, um, enforcing us all sort of to be, I just, I couldn't imagine it now.
0: Yeah. I think I, I, it's one of those people that you're grateful, maybe not grateful exists, but you know, <laughs> I
1: love, a place well, for him. you know, and also that he, uh, was not part of the NEA for if you remember the National Endowments of the Arts and um they they were people really were coming after the artists and that and one of them was Karen Finley and part of her show is she was shoving yams up her ass and um I saw a show of hers and she didn't shove any yams there was no yam content, but it was a really great show. she's a really great artist.
0: I think that's the interesting thing that starts happening too in punk rock is that you do have that bleed over of a performance art and, Mm -hmm. and punk. And I think also in, you know, and I, I don't know very much about it. This is much more your world than mine, but like certainly in the world of comedy, you start seeing that too, where you have a lot of, a lot of comedians begin pushing boundaries and start presenting comedy completely differently. And I think that it's amazing how many of these people from Bobcat Goldquake to yourself kind of come out of punk rock or or were in punk bands at some point.
1: Well, Bobcat is like such a punk comic. Like he's Mm -hmm. like that, um, sort of, you know, on the verge of like between rock star and comedian, you know, there was a time where he was like playing stadiums and his, uh, appearance was like so much about this very um it's a very unique very singular artist a very punk rock and very much like you know this i i mean i i, I really admire him but at my i think at my time in san francisco and going to shows i think like the most punk comic was probably david cross mm. um who was a always taking us to shows there was always a drummer of some band staying at his house There was always some drummer uh there's always some band but he uh was really he was sort of the male and then the female would be janine garofalo she was like the most punk rock of uh the the women um but yeah they're they're my heroes
0: have you ever seen that david cross clip where it's uh rupaul and the u-hauls playing their first show and <laughs>
1: yes.
0: have you seen that and david cross leans in to light uh the guitar player's cigarette at some point
1: so cool it's, it's awesome so cool. it's so cool because yeah rupaul is uh, all part of that entire i mean rupaul is actually very punk rock as well so it's mm-hmm. all part of it's all tied in um to uh early punk rock stuff early like new york stuff um it's really it's really exciting
0: well, there's an energy that just draws all the weirdos to it, and yeah. it seems to do it perpetually over time. Like you look at new bands that are happening now that are still cool and still interesting. Kids being drawn to this thing,
1: yes. And what I think punk rock is really great about is that it really, uh it, it really is a, a blurs the lines between race and gender and age and sexuality, all of the stuff. It's like. If you're punk rock, it, it sort of makes you already progressive. It makes you already cool. It makes you already cool with others who don't fit in and so I think that's why it really endures.
0: I've heard you talk about them and I got to bring them up because they're one of my favorite bands, but uh what about the Red Rockers? Did you ever see them?
1: I uh don't know if I oh gosh, you know I I uh love their music and i love the song china like so much i love the red rockers a very 415 uh san francisco band um so great um yeah uh cindy lopper and i would geek out about red rockers all the time i mean they're so great like bands like translator um all of these like amazing uh kind of west coast um early 80s late 70s bands like romeo void they're so the sound of my childhood really or the uptones when you get into ska territory um i actually just got an uptones record and i just can't believe how enduring uh those kinds of ska records are they're so good
0: yeah there's also just on that label 415 or 415 uh record like there's just so many great bands on there and it's and it's Mm kind of like I don't know, it's verging on new wave, but it's still like, you know, especially with the red rockers, like power pop kind of punk edge. Yeah. To
1: it. Power pop is really, I think if I were to settle on a genre, it's really power pop because it's a very um it, it's a very specific genre. Like it's just really there's only like one band in every scene that would qualify. It's the one that kind of the sounds the most like the posies. Like it's a very <laughs> specific of a genre and it's like so um meticulous to get into the genre it's really hard it's mm-hmm. not everybody fits mm-hmm. in the genre it's like a very uh a very specific thing so that that i do love power pop it's it's all about the three o'clock love
0: that.
1: A, <laughs> i love the the paisley underground i love a jellyfish moment um
0: very into it. Absolutely. Yes. Well, it's funny because, like, um right, uh like Steve and Jeff McDonald were just on mm. the show a couple weeks ago, and I brought up the Paisley Underground. and Jeff seemed to imply that it was completely his creation that <laughs> he kind of stumbled upon. I believe
1: thing. it. I think those guys are genius. I mean, oh, I I went to uh, a lot of Red Cross shows. I lived with um Jerry finelli who was their keyboard player for a long time. And so we were uh, privy to. So much um, because of Red Cross and like uh, Red Cross's advices were like, oh, if you ever want to meet a rock star, just put their name to thank them in the liner notes and you'll you'll meet them. It's like a spell. I think that like Steve and, and um, Jeff are like witches. I think that they're like really genius. And um, I I really love them a lot. And then I, I sort of connect with them too through Frightwig. Wig. As mm-hmm. well, and Frightwig were a very important um, San Francisco band. Also, I think Frightwig is probably the reason why I got into punk rock because Paula Frazier from Frightwig was like working for my dad in the bookstore that he owned, the gay bookstore that he owned in the seventies, and so she was uh, always telling me about bands that that I should see or bands that I should like. She was playing me Psychic TV, uh, like cassette tapes so that's probably what got me really into punk rock
0: that's awesome fright was a band that i i only really discovered by doing this show like they're a band that i I don't think gets brought up a lot but they're certainly a band that had massive impact at the time
1: and they still play and um i think that uh yeah they're really really special really important and um just so punk rock, you know, uh, I think uh, they're they're just one of those bands that and they play a lot with Red Cross. Um, so it's one of those bands that should should always have a place in, in all these like conversations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's it just also speaks to how much great stuff was coming out of San Francisco at the time. Like, what about the Melvins or Neurosis? Did you ever see them?
1: I don't think I ever saw them. But I'm sure that they were uh, part of uh the landscape. I mean there, there's there's them there's the residents mm-hmm. which were almost a little bit they almost are like predecessors and in, in a way like the residents were almost kind of like elder statesmen of that kind of weirdo est- aesthetic and brought the orchestral vibe to the punk rock then you had um the tubes who I absolutely love still the tubes are really like to me um also power pop very specific but also kind of like prog rock as well so they're really really special
0: yeah it's funny you bring up the residents because I never really think about it you know like that but they are really the the genesis of that kind of weird streak that runs throughout music in the Bay Area and rock and roll and I think you're right it really goes back to the residents all the way up to Faith No More
1: yes um Faith No More and uh the residents Faith No More is incredible I mean what an incredible band and, and also very queer coded, you know, like the residents also have kind of a queer coded thing. They have kind of a, like an alignment with like the cockettes and they have a, some, some sort of like a drag. I don't know, like if you have an eyeball with a cane, there's something about that that lends itself to drag. So I, mm. I love all of that.
0: Yeah, no. And, and I think they also, they do have something that's sort of uh I don't know. Very theatrical about the presentation too, the whole way through with that band, like right down to the mystery of who who they are, like the fact that they have yeah. these double lives, and it's, like
1: we don't know. Yeah, we don't know who they are. There, there's like a mystery of the costuming and the grandeur, but it's also surreal, and kind of like there's a horror element, but it's not um, necessarily goth. It's mm-hmm. more psychedelic.
0: So it's not Penn and Teller, right? You can confirm that. <laughs>
1: no i mean penn Pen and teller is cool too but penn and teller is almost like uh its own thing i mean they were like kind like i would say it's almost closer to something like banksy like who yeah, is yeah. this
0: yeah absolutely You like, no, don't w- even
1: know who this is
0: the rumor was that it was penn and teller and i was going to be like wow that yeah. would be a, a real shock that would be the ultimate twist on that On the, but uh, i think
1: you you would know because t- uh uh pen is so tall (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) it'd be a large football player all of a sudden in the residence and you'd be like wait something's up something's all right so
1: you know it's 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 hard to know it's hard to know but i love all that stuff
0: uh what about the farm i've heard you talk about that Do you go to shows there much
1: i went to shows at the farm the farm had the most dangerous pit Mm so because you had them wearing the biggest biggest steel toe boots that were covered in like goat shit and cow shit like it wasn't just um the regular sort of like hate street dog shit and human shit you had a uh, farm animal legit farm animal dung on huge heavy cow boots and like and not boot cowboy boots but like steel toe punk rock boots and uh just kicking, like scary kicking. Like I don't know what was going on, but to me that was the most uh, destructive pit. Some uh, pits are, you know, the the pit is always a very dangerous place anyway. Um, and it got more and more combative and dangerous, like the longer I stayed in the pit. Like I almost died at a pulp show <laughs> in the pit uh, during Common People. So I'm like really worried about because everybody was trying to get the driver's cockpit, They were pushing. And I really, I almost lost consciousness. My feet were off the ground, but, um, the pit, like the, like the more, uh, new metal it became the pit, like the, it was the junco jeans and like all of the, the big pants and with the wallet chains were like flying around. You could like get knock a tooth out easily. Oh,
0: absolutely. It's like a mace. Coming yeah yeah that wallet
1: the the wallet chain. it is amazing it's like a medieval weapon it's like really scary but with the big pants and it was really really a nightmare
0: i think it's also the bigger those shows are the more dangerous those pits can be like if it's a small house show it doesn't matter how violent that pit is because you got to look everyone in the eye it's when it gets on mass like pulp playing common people that you got to start worrying about the sway of the humanity
1: I mean, you don't think it's going to be violent when it's Jarvis Cocker, and it may not have necessarily like nobody there was sort of thinking that it was going to be. But I think that it was just because they just love Jarvis Cocker so much and they love that song. And it was the all of the pressure of people lurching towards the stage, like leaning in, and we sort of didn't expect it.
0: I'd be lurching. I'm not going to lie. I I'd be it. lurching. It's Jarvis. I, it. How I was right on? there.
1: I know. I was right there, so I know.
0: They were a punk band too, though, Pulp. They started back in 84 doing punk records. So once again, it all comes back.
1: It does all come back. But, you know, punk rock really thrives where it's cold outside and you have to go inside and do something. And, um, you know, it, it's sort of like that. that's where punk bands start, I think, when it's cold.
0: Uh, did you at one point sing in the White Trash Debutantes?
1: Yes. Uh, that was my first band that i was in and and ginger coyote who uh is such a an incredible sort of like a i mean incredible figure but also an incredible like rock uh, like pioneer she's really she's really astounding so yes i was in that band um it, it it you know they would do a lot of glam rock covers so you you had a lot of um like Slade covers a lot a lot of like uh that kind of stuff it, I I think it was really it, there's a lot of people in the band too um we do shows at the Sixth Street Rendezvous in San Francisco
0: yeah it's a venerable who's who that was in that band Billy Gould was in that band from Faith mm-hmm. No More and mm-hmm. Jimmy Crucifix from Crucifix it was, that's
1: right that's right that's right It, it a was, lot of people
0: yeah. Like, were you, did you make any of the records or had you already moved to LA by the time they put up the album?
1: I wasn't on any of the records. I just did the live shows and I only did a few of those. Um, I was just so, um, the, the I had the huge pink wig and I was so hot inside of everything that I just couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand all the costuming, but uh, I, I really love Ginger and I, I still speak to her today on occasion on social media. She's really special.
0: Yeah. A legend definitely yes, the a a legendary legend. band mm-hmm. I, I gotta ask you about a legendary show from where i'm from degrassi junior high I've oh yes talk about that show where'd you see that you,
1: you uh yeah you love you and mike park you, some of the some <laughs> of the ska east bay Scott really attached to degrassi junior high like they really attach to Degrassi and won't let go. It's got a chokehold on the East Bay punk rock Scott well, scene.
0: Also, the Western Mass scene, because Jay Maskis is the biggest fan of Degrassi of anyone <laughs> I've ever met. That guy's obsessed.
1: Which, you know, you it's so funny because it's like you would never think that. Like, we think of like Dennis or Jr. as being like so, um, there's something so emotive about uh, the music and the lyrics that you would never think that somebody that would create that sound would also really vibe with Degrassi but that you know that there's a very I mean there's something about Degrassi Junior I think there's something like very earnest about Degrassi and it was very progressive you know Mm -hmm. it was like definitely way before it's time like it really hit hit a lot of people in the right way
0: and they cast real kids like uh, you know uh Spike from Degrassi was on the show and and she's she's a legit punk like they cast her as a punk rocker because that's what they were looking for. And who knew that all those Dinosaur Junior songs were written about her?
1: It's so cool. I love it. And I think it's really I think it's really beautiful. I mean, I think it's uh, it's very um, I think it speaks volumes to the honesty and authenticity that Degrassi was like really putting out there, which I think is really beautiful.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those shows that it's kind of timeless in the way because it is so real and and it it preforetells what kids are into now, right? Like kids want reality; they're not. No one's looking for the polish in the same way they used to. Like now, they want mm-hmm. you know very uncharismatic kids talking right into camera playing Minecraft,
1: <laughs> and they they do love the um, the perfect and perfect or the unreliable narrators, which I think is what's really um, the, what Degrassi was really kind of like the predecessor to all the things like euphoria now
0: and and drake it gave it gave drake (laughs) right right in
1: the new when that when they went to the new the new like the y2k version
0: yes but the y2k one had some of the old teachers or some of the old students there now as teachers and and Mm -hmm. parents and stuff so it really did feel like the continuity was still there at that point
1: right because it's still a school it's still it's still the same school so i i i love that
0: it's like Coronation Street, but for Canadian kids. Corey,
1: right? <laughs> it's Corey. It's Neighbors. It's EastEnders. I don't know if you ever watched EastEnders. Is that British? Um,
0: yes. Kind of working
1: class a soap opera, which I, I loved in the nineties too.
0: Growing up in Canada, we got a lot of British TV. Oh, it was a so, uh, yeah.
1: EastEnders was great because it was all about like the fallout after the Falklands War. And the guys coming home and kind of not really being able to deal with their PTSD and their toxic masculinity that they had sort of had to like use to survive like Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show.
0: I think, I think it's also like that's that, I guess, British kitchen sink drama yeah. film stuff on TV. Like they do love kind of like, well, I guess that's where reality TV hit there first.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, they also, yeah, the realism it's, it's like, um, you know, the, the the romance of the working class, uh, there's so many great films, uh, you know, like Billy Liar and um, The Loneliest and the Long Distance, Run- Distance Runner. And, um, you know, even uh, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, you know, there's a lot of like really uh, very uh, hyper real um, emotional movies where not that much happens, but so much happens in terms of like the characters development and what they're feeling and so yeah I love that I love that stuff
0: yeah it's it's it I guess that's where Degrassi kind of like the uh the, the training wheels version of that sort of reality for kids kind of giving it th- to them and and you know nine hundred two and all these shows try and do it but it's not I don't know it's not the same I guess that's where Canada kind of gets it right rarely do we get it right in terms of TV and movies and up here so We're
1: okay gets it right a lot of the time i mean i always thought that Uh, sctv was superior to snl so and then kids in the hall is like superior to any 90s um comedy troupe you know there's like a lot of like canadian comedy that really it prevails like it definitely it it outshines any other country Um, particularly sketch comedy i think outshines any other country
0: yeah, we've got we've got some good sketch comedy, but my gosh, there's some there's some rough dramas that you have to watch in Canadian <laughs> film studies. <laughs> uh, uh, because I do uh, love uh, the movies as well. Uh, I got to ask you about working with John Woo. What was it like oh, working with him?
1: Incredible. Um- so what my first uh, one of my first days of shooting we exploded a Cessna. They exploded a plane. And I mean these like the 90s the action films of the 90s the money you cannot believe how much money they had. They had um 13 separate camera units uh going to explode this plane <laughs> like it's like you were going to like have like 13 separate crews, 13 separate like basically not just angles like entire units to capture this one stunt and um to make the film like you had to uh be basically in production for a whole year because there were so many stunt sequences and uh John Travolta only worked 10 hours a day and that was flying his plane that included flying his plane getting up flying his plane to work and then flying his plane back so he was coming from commuting from Santa Barbara to Los Angeles every day and he would fly himself to set and then fly himself home and he had to be leave home and 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 come home in 10 hours so <laughs> um it took over a year to make the film because he's in pretty much every scene so it was a the, the amount of money was incredible. But uh, John Wu and I became friends from that. And he brought me to San Francisco for a big uh, thing that he was being honored by. And, and Chow Yun-Fat was there. and Michelle Yeoh was that's there, awesome, which is like so incredible. And I would try to talk to them about Wong Kar Wai. And they would be like, oh, ho, ho, he, Wong Kar Wai, that's music. That's music movies. It's music videos. And, you know, they, <laughs> they didn't see film in the same way. Um, but, you know, obviously, because they have such very different points of view when it comes to like, I mean, I think Wong Kar is much more of like the, um, it's like Godard or Truffaut. It's like definitely like a different sort of French New Wave experience. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, um, somebody is, you know, somebody like John Woo is, is like out of like Clouseau or like Melville. Like it's a very specific, it's Hitchcock. Like it's a very mm-hmm. specific kind of tightly wound cinema that it's not about sort of evocative mood it's really about like what's happening to break break the break this tension that he's constantly like renewing and um but that movie was so incredible to make because they just don't make them like that nobody makes action films like that anymore because we didn't have the advent of like cgi we didn't have we actually had to do stunts in like real time like really big ones
0: when also like you know like john woo being sort of the greatest artist in that milieu is mm-hmm. is given the biggest budget ever to make his greatest film like it's kind of like you're there painting the sistine's chapel kind of vibe with that film it feels like well that's as someone watching it as a fan
1: yeah even, it, even it, it it, everybody's <laughs> in everybody's in it like it's yeah. like got uh, joan allen and gina gershon and um doves and <laughs> it's going to say- have the doves and nicholas cage (laughs) and oh uh tommy flanagan and um all these like great i mean just great great people are in that but it's like nicholas cage is so intense in it because he is um half of it he's john travolta so it's like the weirdest thing because he's also a very method actor so he's in character for half of it so half of it he's like (laughs) really mean and the other half he's like john travolta's character so he, he's Caster or pollux it's very it's very interesting to work with him
0: but like he wouldn't play he'd be playing john travolta's character not john travolta when he's doing john travolta no, off yeah. camera so
1: he would be either Caster or pollux okay. in the movie <laughs> yeah. um so it's like a very it, it was really interesting because it was like probably like no everybody who works with nicholas cage has sort of that idea like oh he's going to be in this character the whole film but here he's two different characters the whole yeah. film. very very interesting
0: you could write a book just about making this movie
1: i probably should <laughs> i mean i think uh i uh well i got to become friends with john travolta and um so i would sit with him and one time i saw him eat an entire poison pie with a fork like he didn't even cut it nine inch pie didn't cut it into slices just went at it, the whole pie with a fork and ate respect. it. which I respect. <laughs> and this was after we had split a beef Wellington. <laughs> so I really, I admire him so much. And uh, he is like the most uh, king-like person I've ever met. Like very much royalty.
0: Dave from Sum 41 said that when they were recording with Ig- Iggy Pop, he ate an entire chocolate cake Ooh. by himself. Ooh. So I guess there's something to it, you know. I mean,
1: I think that yeah, it's really, I mean, that's inspiring. I think that it's really I don't see it like in Iggy Pop. Maybe Iggy Pop is so um he's so cut. Like he's so uh that wiry, muscly fit. Yeah. Very like, like I don't I could never I don't I don't know where he puts it.
0: Dave Dave asked him. Dave's like, how do you do this? <laughs> and he goes, I do a lot of deep breathing. And apparently that's how he does it.
1: Oh, <laughs> that's so cute.
0: <laughs> I think as you're inhaling the cake, like, ooh, and just chocolate cake oh. all over your face.
1: I guess he's always well, dancing all the time, so I guess he's going to burn it right
0: off. Yeah.
1: That's great.
0: When, when we, uh, the band I play in open him, and the story he told us was he doesn't eat at all the day of the show. And then they keep a mm. restaurant open for him all night. So he can just gorge himself all night on
1: food. Oh, great. Oh that's great. That's great.
0: Yeah, so I, guess, I think that's you know, wonderful. Everyone needs a system, you know.
1: So rock and roll. <laughs> I still haven't figured out my system like I never know when to eat and then by the end of the night I'm just like all I have is sour patch kids.
0: If if I not eat before, enough. well if I eat before the show it's going to be Gigi Allen. It's going to be a lot of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know. I
1: mean, I don't know I don't know when to eat. Like it's really hard to figure that out. Um and i i just i still haven't really mastered it
0: i'm sure a restaurant would stay open for you you get a restaurant i've
1: had that i've had that happen but i think um i also kind of don't know uh i i just don't never think ahead that far to do that i should do that
0: <laughs> uh when you get up to la were you going to shows or were you focus more on comedy at that point
1: um i was definitely going to shows um and then uh, going to lots of festivals, like going to um, Bonnaroo's. I did a show with Guar. Um, one of the my highlights, I think for like my rock and roll life is like doing a shore w- show with Gwar and getting um, in their tent backstage, they all it smells heavily of uh, Altoids because they're in the huge costumes and they're so hot inside that they have to eat mints in order to feel cool. Mm. And um, cause no amount of air conditioning is going to be enough. So <laughs> they're constantly eating and chewing a mint. So which is very disconcerting because you think that they're going to smell like, I don't know, blood or whatever, but they really smell like cinnamon and mint.
0: It's, it's, you know it's funny with that band the amount of work that went into that and just seeing them like that was a band I I met I I only got to meet them one time and I met Dave and he was in character so I never really got to even meet Dave I hung out with him in character for the afternoon but it (laughs) was I I feel like rest in peace obviously but he is someone that I've I've been fascinated by for a long time like what an interesting person
1: so interesting and just so just gone too young you know Mm -hmm. And what a great, what a great band and um, just so genius and so different and so, so innovative and, and uh, really, really, really special.
0: Yeah. A band that it just feels like, you you know, couldn't happen now, maybe in the same sort of way, because it would Mm -hmm. be just assumed by the industry too quickly.
1: I think so. I mean, they were just some, they were, they were, they endured for as long as they did was like really amazing. And I think they just... You know, people were just really loving them so much. So I, I really admire their journey.
0: I've I've lost the name of it now, but there's apparently a Christian guar that I've learned about on the show.
1: Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I didn't know that. Well, <laughs> I mean, they can do, a, I guess they'll do a Hamilton. If they're going to do a Hamilton, I, might, I guess they might as well do a heavy metal. I don't know. That's weird. But there <laughs> is Christian rock, so there must be Christian heavy metal.
0: There is definitely Christian heavy metal, and there's definitely uh, like a parallel Christian punk scene that kind of, you know, happens, springs up around the '80s and goes throughout the '90s. It becomes huge in the wow. '90s, but wow. uh, but there's apparently within this scene a Christian goar, which, <laughs> which I,
1: <laughs> I mean, are they biblical characters? Like, are they like David and Goliath? Like, is it like like the monsters from the Bible? Or I mean. I will-
0: I will look it up and find a way to send you the links to, I've watched a couple of YouTube videos. It's definitely a lot lower budget than Guar. Yeah. I mean, it
1: would, it would work if it was like biblically accurate angels (laughs) fighting with like the beast in revelations. That would be kind of interesting. That would be awesome. Yeah. That would make it like, Oh, that's actually kind of cool. Like if you actually did it with like a lot of like uh, VR or whatever, you know, that would be something to see. But I I think that's where, is there like black, metal christian christian black metal
0: there is yeah there's definitely christian black metal there's actually even weirder you know the band white house the uh industrial power noise band from the 80s the infamous Mm -hmm. white house Mm -hmm. there is apparently a christian anti-white house called black house that is a christian answer to white house
1: wow that's really uh that's really (laughs) wow yeah wow so there, i guess there would be like a christian death in june then probably i guess
0: so i guess what it would be called like uh <laughs> birth in december
1: i uh, yeah oh that's a good yeah that's what it, what it should be i mean that there's just got to be like uh some sort of answer to everything but that's really that's kind of that's that's kind of incredible
0: i think that's you know i think that's the thing that there's there's like you know is that rule whatever that rule about there's a porn version of something on the internet as soon as something exists there's there's a christian rock version of something as soon as there's gotta be
1: there's gotta be i mean i uh i don't think i know really any i mean there there's i guess there's christian music that i do like like like, i love the staple singers Mm and i i i mean i love like um some of the uh choral music of of like mahalia jackson and i do love gospel and i do yeah there's things like that i do uh, like spiritual music that i do vibe with like judy sill did a lot of like music that was very she's like sort of folk christian um but i don't really i don't understand like the big like hill song kind of music i like that kind of freaks me out when it gets real corporate
0: yeah well it's it's interesting like i you know as a younger kid that was like very anti-christian punk from a distance was i looked at it as being something that was going to be a recruitment tool that was trying mm-hmm. to draw people in uh but now once again from doing this podcast and meeting a lot of kids that kind of came out of that scene or came up through that scene it was a, for them an escape because mm-hmm. their parents would them, wouldn't let them listen to secular music and they could be like no 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 this is a punk song about jesus and the mm. parents would be fine with it. So that was kind of their on-ramp to getting into outside cultures.
1: That's interesting. I mean, ultimately Jesus is if you take Jesus alone, if you actually like like a biblical form of Jesus, Jesus himself is kind of punk rock where he's like, you know, uh throwing over like people like like trying to lend money in the church and trying to, you know, Uh, sort of make money off the church and stuff so there's something that's kind of very punk rock about that
0: Mm -hmm. oh there's actually well there's that jello Biafra doa song jesus was a terrorist i think Mm -hmm. is the name of it and it's Mm -hmm. very much about how there's this guy who's anti-state and uh, like you're saying trying to trying to throw all of these conventions but i I don't know if it's necessarily taken up in the same sort of way (laughs) in a lot of the christian punk music
1: I don't I don't know but yeah I mean I'm glad that they have an outlet and punk can be for everyone but that kind of freaks me out
0: (laughs) (laughs) it it is definitely it it's it's fascinating because it is like as I say a parallel world like once again there's some extremes like I couldn't imagine the Christian kid that heard White House and was like okay I gotta I gotta make a response to this record Mm -hmm. it's like why were you hearing it in the first place like you just avoid it (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I just like remember like Striper, where, yes. uh that heavy metal um, sort of glam metal Christian band, and they always had uh, this Bible verse number in their like merch, and it's just like that's so weird.
0: It's like In uh, In an Out Burger, where it's got the the Bible yeah. on the bottom. Oh, of the right,
1: right. Or like a Forever Twenty One, it's got like a John three sixteen really yeah it's so weird it's like what oh no
0: maybe they're just fans of wrestling and it's it's a reference to Stone Cold steve austin
1: maybe i hope so (laughs) so weird
0: that'd be very weird if it was either way it's kind of weird for forever 21 to do that you know
1: yeah it's very strange i don't know
0: uh i gotta ask you about research magazine were you a fan of that or were you aware of that back then
1: yes my parents um sold research magazine
0: oh that's awesome
1: and um, they would also sell tattoo time because all of my parents employees were heavily tattooed by uh um ed hardy and bill salman who uh had a studio a couple blocks away from the bookstore and so ed was actually bringing in the tattoo time to sell it on consignment and um so i knew ed since i was a real little kid but um so we had research and um, research was like such an incredible publication. I mean, just all of their issues were just so amazing.
0: Mm-hmm. And then the books, when they got into doing the books about, you know, zines and, the, and then, you know, um, um, anarcho-syndicalism. They had so many different interesting books that I was like picking up on as a kid.
1: So many interesting books. Like they had their um, kind of uh, modern primitives was probably mm-hmm. the most um progressively like interesting and and wild, like where people were getting very heavily pierced and tattooed. And uh, the Fakir Musafar had like a lot of stuff in there where he was like getting, doing the corset training and all sorts of stuff, you know, that there's just like wild, wild stuff in that.
0: And I think that's the thing about those, the distribution of those books, especially when you had big box bookstores eventually carrying this stuff is the hands they got into were really, it would have been people that would not have seen it in the Midwest or I don't mm-hmm. want to say that middle of Canada, too, and, and stuff like that. Like, I think this was a, you know, a, a great beacon at a certain point for people.
1: Oh, yeah. And it was also just a way to uh, kind of like um, make these sort of things so accessible. So you could sort of learn about them in a way that wasn't just lurid and, you um, you know, very, uh, like, a cautionary tale. It was actually just people who were in it and wanted to explain what they were doing in it, which I think is really cool.
0: So did your parents' bookstore carry other zines, too?
1: Yeah, we carried a lot of, um, a huge amount of porn, which now is, like, really incredible to me. Like, uh, also Skin too, all mm-hmm. of those, like, latex magazines from England. We had a lot of um, gay, uh, like, bodybuilding publications, and then leaning into things like Honcho and Blue Boy, which is sort of like men's magazines. So uh, there was a lot of like that kind of stuff, you know, Um, instead of, say, like Playboy and Penthouse, we had um, all of the the gay ones, the only heterosexual, like, female nudity we probably ever had was like Madonna's sex book. (laughs) But, But other than that was like very, very gay oriented.
0: Well, definitely, it seems more like um, transgressive and subversive kind of literature, too, in, 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 yes. in that yes. kind of world, which it feels yeah. like it it feels like that's such like a I don't know, that's something that's kind of lost now. I feel like mm-hmm. in, in the modern days that because we don't have these stores that were kind of like bastions for cool, subversive culture, you kind of just it gets lost in the ether now.
1: Right. I mean, we had like big rolling racks full of like gay romance no novels that like had been written under pseudonyms. Um, you know, like just all all and it was no photographs, it was all like line drawings of men like by a lake underneath a full moon in a tank top. Like it was very, <laughs> like, very uh Tom of Finland kind of stuff. stuff. Tom of Finland kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of that, uh all of John Waters' books and and the books of people that had been in john waters movies like cookie mueller <laughs> like all sorts of like john waters everything um lots of stuff that was all like whatever it, if it was about the velvet underground or about um, any of the beats my dad was really wanted to create a place like sea lights so he wanted to be a beatnik. And so um, he wanted a bookstore that would also maybe have events. And so we'd have book signings and things like that. But um it was really uh, all sort of thwarted by the AIDS epidemic or the AIDS pandemic, which is our first pandemic, really, Um, unfortunately, but it was a really amazing place when we were there.
0: Yeah, it, is, it seems like it was been an amazing time. Like there was this sort of you know, like, uh, just an overflowing of cool things kind of happening literature from John Waters to, to like Annie Sprinkle performance art. Like, it feels like it was like a real mm-hmm. vibrant city to be in at that time. Really
1: great. Just a great time to be there. And Annie Sprinkle at that point, I think was living on a houseboat in Sausalito <laughs> with her wife. So they were like, right, right down the street. There was like so much, um, so much stuff going on in terms of uh, like punk rock, and there was so much like just starting to happen, um, and going to shows at like the Night Break and the iBeam and uh, going to see American Music Club at the Hotel Utah, and uh, all sorts of things. I, I'm really glad I was there for.
0: Was it weird to suddenly go from this because then you uh, like in I don't mean to truncate time for it, but like then all of a sudden you're on this incredible national stage, like you're kind of the, the height of the stand up comedy world, you know, at, it seems like shortly thereafter. Was it like a weird thing to kind of go through mentally or did you feel like you're just r- rolling with it at the time?
1: I was just rolling with it i mean i i didn't really have an awareness of what was going on i just enjoyed doing stand-up comedy and um it's funny because there were a lot of people who were in music who also loved to kind of be around uh stand-up comedy so i would uh do shows um in hollywood and um oh uh maynard from tool would like come and try to do like sketch comedy. <laughs> it's like really great. So I mean, I think that's really cute. It's really cute how like musicians always would get very excited about, about comedy.
0: Well, I think because they, they feel like well, they're up on stage, they get some laughs in between songs. <laughs> they also think they can do it as a job.
1: Yeah, there's just something about it that there's just like there's like a really huge appeal. And of course, Bob Mold always loves comedy. Bob Mold is like a big um comedy fan so I think it's really it's really fun
0: yeah there's definitely this uh synergy you know and I think Worcester John Worcester is one of the funniest people I know and also one of the greatest drummers
1: yeah John Worcester is really actually a uh, real um he he is a he's such a, a polymath like he can do everything like he's really great at everything he does and truly like renaissance man to the highest degree um just a really great great musician and a really great comedian and um you know he's he's really really special
0: uh one of the, my favorite videos is watching you explain uh genesis purge to jerry seinfeld and just uh
1: <laughs> <coughs> yeah it's funny because i mean he just didn't really i mean he doesn't, he doesn't he doesn't know about psychic tv no i love genesis genesis she's she's it's sad because she's like you know uh, well, now she, you know, she's she's in perfect union mm-hmm. with her love. But uh, I think that she had a lot of a lot more music to make.
0: Yeah, I, I feel uh, reading uh, reading her book. It's just been you know so eye opening to how if there's one person that kind of embodies this sort of punk rock spirit before punk all the way through to today, it, w- it was Genesis.
1: Yeah, she just really, I think. Embodied what it meant to be punk rock, and um just so genius, and and just a great. I just like I love the music, you know, all through Psychic Guy and then like, just all her solo stuff. You know, she's just really so phenomenal.
0: Uh, when did you first see Husker Du? You mentioned seeing him in rock and Reagan, but it seems like Bob Mold, someone that you kind of followed throughout his career.
1: I uh, saw Sugar probably more times than Husker Du. Um, So I think I saw Husker do like definitely at Rock Against Reagan and then during shows at the Vats where they would have uh, those shows at the old beer factory. Um, So he would do shows there with Husker do and then later in the 90s, I saw Sugar multiple times uh, throughout um, like Hollywood uh, during um, kind of like the The workbook through, so the workbook and uh, Sheets of Rain, that kind of era was more just Bob Mold and then Sugar, which was so so many hits um, and was such a mainstay during um, like the alt rock kind of 120 minutes era um, of the 90s, the Matt Pinfield era um, during the 90s. So I I think I just saw Sugar more times than I've seen any other incarnation of Bob Mold
0: you saw shows of the vats that's so sick you saw so many it's so, cool
1: it's so so many cool places and it's yeah. like a, you know this is when i really regret that i did so many drugs too because i really have very very faint memories of all of it because <laughs> i was so high and you don't retain all that and i'm like You know, it's I I think drugs have a place definitely in the world. But um, what's sad is that I paid more attention to the drug experience than the experience I was in because I was actually in the middle of history.
0: Well, I think that's also just one of the drawbacks of being uh, in punk is that you get to experience all this stuff so young, including drugs and things like that. So you might not a lot of times you're not aware of what your limits are or or Mm -hmm. that you need limits even.
1: Well, it's more like, too, that you just aren't fully aware of what's happening because you're going to want to remember it, you know, and then you don't realize that you're going to want to remember it because it's just like, why would I care about that? You know, it's just like so cool it's happening, but I don't, I don't, I don't think I don't, I'm not gonna think about this again, but then you're like, oh, yes, I will. I'm going to really treasure this, but I missed out on a lot of stuff because I was high.
0: Well, but yeah, like, you know, also, it's just amazing how many lives you've led. You know, like from this like weird little punk rock chapter that I'm obsessed with, including this like unbelievable career that goes all these other places. But yeah,
1: yeah. It's great.
0: Well, yeah, and going back to the vats, it's like one night of many. Did you ever go to the Gilman?
1: I I'm sure that I went to the Gilman. I mean, I'm sure that I went. And I'm like, I can't why can't I remember? Because I did go to Berkeley all the time. So I'm sure I went, but I I can't remember. And I can't remember if I saw people there who I saw there.
0: Would you yeah, like would you have seen Operation Ivy?
1: Yeah, I definitely saw Operation. I mean, I I'm, I'm friends with Tim anyway, and there was like a period of time where I was like, "Oh, Operation Ivy is the only band." And yeah. like that's I I I have told Tim before like, "Oh, you know, there, there there's this phase that we go through where we're like, "Oh, Operation Ivy is the only band. he's like, "Oh, really? Wow." <laughs> it's like such a funny Thing of like he's like yeah i can see that like he's like i guess i understand that sometimes you really do go go into a thing where it, i guess maybe it is the only band for some people's for some time
0: it's well, true it, it's almost like a velvet underground type band where everyone that yeah. heard it started a band
1: right it's so uh seminal is mm-hmm. truly like that that can be applied there it's truly the that that feeling of like people realize oh I've got it I've been so inspired now I've got to do this
0: yeah like Talib Kweli was on the show and talked about how he used to write Mm -hmm. Jesse Michaels lyrics on his dorm room wall and it's like wow they had an impact on hip-hop too in a weird way like they've had so much of an impact
1: yeah it's so great I love that that's beautiful
0: um I guess this has been unbelievable and anytime you want to come back on and talk about punk rock please know i'd love to talk to you more about this stuff
1: well thank you
0: but before i let you go can i ask you one more question yes for years jim goad has been dining out on this story that he gave the answer that you gave him the or you gave quinter the answer me anthology and that's what he based natural born killers on is that true i don't know if
1: he i'm not sure if he based it i mean i gave him the answer me uh I had like bought and given that to so many different people, and I, I um had a uh, a bunch of like the that uh, to a couple comics. I had um given out a bunch of. I gave Quentin a bunch of um eight balls originally mm. eight balls, um and uh. But yeah, I definitely he Quentin would come over and uh we would watch um a lot of uh kind of like exploitation cinema and then we would read all the stuff that I had gotten from amok. So it was like a million zines and a lot of the stuff was like Jim goat stuff. But uh I don't know if he I couldn't say that he would have based um <laughs> natural Born kills but it, it if you look at it, it does make sense. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely makes sense.
0: It's amazing when you like about answer me like when Sarush was from Vice was on, he talked about how that was like a, a massive influence on Vice when they started mm-hmm. and it's amazing how that zine one of the most derided zines during its time is still still has an impact or still has a, a pl- not maybe not a place culturally but has has a resonance culturally
1: well it has a lot of resonance i mean i think because uh that i think also like basically true crime and comedy together that's mm-hmm. where it comes from like you couldn't have like a um last podcast on the left, if it weren't for something like Answer Me, like you can definitely see the cultural like shift of like, actually let's bring together a uh, cynical worldview towards all the really terrible things that happen. Yeah, And, um, you know, therein is a kind of different way to metabolize tragedy, which I think is really interesting. So that's what I think Answer Me's contribution was. It's like, let's take the, this, the sort of, um, Moralistic judgment out of all this, and let's just get really like wild with it. And it's a it's a kind of a remix of suffering that I feel is really vital to culture.
0: Well, that's I think that's also the genesis of Vice too. Like that was really the yeah. Vice sort of viewpoint in the beginning.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And uh you know, I love how Vice goes back to like the '90s too, in a way that's really like you know it's from the perspective of somebody that survived the 90s as well so i just watched their chris farley uh dark side of comedy which is really really good so i think that they just have such a yeah i see the trajectory culturally of all these things that we've been through together and i love it
0: i I can't wait for the dark side of vice that's the one we're all waiting for
1: (laughs) yeah it's gonna be good oh my gosh that'll be be (laughs) so funny i love it (laughs)
0: Thank you, Margaret, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Margaret can come back anytime she wants, and we can talk more punk rock, talk comedy, talk movies. She's a legend. Oh, my gosh. So grateful I got to do that. Thank you, Tristan. Okay, on to the next episode of the show. And the only way to follow up one legend is with another. On the next episode of Turned Out of Punk... From Blondie, aka Elvis Ramon, Clem Burke will be on the show, and this is a awesome conversation. We talk about we talk about a lot of stuff from power pop records to oh man, I'm I'm excited for you here. I'm not going to ramble on. Them. Why why would I spoil it for you now? Eh, there's no need to do that. Uh, that that's it for today's show. Remember as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of Indigenous peoples around the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and different races and different religions and just knock all that stuff off because we're not talking about politics here. We're talking about just basic human rights shit. And to that, I will also add, we need to make sure, and this is for Canada too, for every, everywhere around the world. We need to make sure that we do not allow people to take away other people's reproductive rights. We can't let people take away abortion rights from other people because fuck that. That is fascist bullshit too. And there's no room for that stuff in our world. So get involved in organizations that are doing positive work. Lend your time, lend your money, lend your, lend your voice. Just get involved. Um, speaking of getting involved, get involved in, in making your own culture. Anyone can do this stuff. Start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast, start just drawing pictures, making flyers. You know, this 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 gets better when you participate in it, punk. Start a zine. Who knows where that zine could go? Who knows what that zine could influence, as we found out on today's show. Sign your organ donor cards, because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them anymore. They could be uh, doing something very positive for someone else. I've seen it. I've seen that do miracles someone getting a new organ. so so sign your cards please and I think that's it. Oh try meditation. if you' if you've never tried it or you don't believe in it or you've tried it a couple times you got frustrated and gave it up I I was there. I felt the exact same way and then did enough and it kind of clicked. so try it. who knows where where it goes. and that's it stay safe. I love you. And I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.